Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you. Wherever you may be, this is your host, Bruce Ash, and co-host... Eb Wilkinson. ...coming to you live from the luxurious Corazon Cabinet Studios located in the KVOI Broadcast Complex here in Tucson, Arizona, welcoming, welcoming <laughs> you to a special edition of Inside Track. Producer Tom also joins us running the board and taking your calls. We invite your questions or comments for our guest, Sixto Molina, here at 790-2040, relevant to our topic. Eb? Hey, Bruce and I want to thank you and remind you to please support our great sponsors, Tucson Iron and Metal Retail, 209-1576. Jamie has loads of great steel products at low, low prices for your home, office, or ranch. Drop by the yard Monday through Friday, 8 to 4.30, and Saturdays, 8 to 1. Corazon Cabinets, 488-2266. Call Joy or Allie to design luxury cabinets for your kitchen and bath at prices you will love. Also, remember Essential Pest Control. Call 886-3029. Eric Rudin's professional crews will keep your, your house safe from bugs, termites, varmints, and even weeds. Also supporting Inside Track is my co-host, the aforementioned Eb Wilkinson from Wilkinson Wealth Management. Eb is dedicated to help you retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call for Eb at 777-1911. Hey, did I tell you Eb is running for the National NRA Board? Please vote for him for the NRA. Voting in shortly, so get your ballots in today. Vote early and vote often, right, Eb? Exactly. I'm not sure. You, I'm not sure you could do that, but um, if you live in Chicago, you can. Okay, Eb and I support all of our great locally owned, family run businesses who support our show. So should you. Before we get to our special guest for today's show, local legend Sixto Molina, just a few words about the news yesterday on the collapse of the nation's 16th largest bank, Silicon Valley Bank, which appears to have been caused by highly questionable investments in companies who never made any money and probably never had any chance of doing so, including crypto companies such as USD Coin. This reckless bank made one bad bet after another, causing a run on them yesterday which most Americans like me, I'd never heard of this bank before. At noon yesterday, the FDIC threw management out and took control of that bank. Crazy thing, Jim Cramer from CNBC, who absolutely no one should ever take seriously again, just one month ago pitched Silicon Valley Bank to viewers of his show as a bank stock to buy with virtuous leadership. What an idiot. Wow. Anyone who took his advice lost their shirts. Frankly, this bank seemed to be more concerned with diversity, empowerment, and equity, which I'm sure made all of their tech depositors feel good about themselves than they did about profits or protecting their depositors or shareholders. I wonder how all of that ESG, DEI, is feeling to depositors now. Who knows if the Silicon Valley Bank's tragic end will be a one-off, as the White House and others in the Joe Biden administration want us to believe, but the unbusinesslike rhetoric from the Secretary of the Treasury should give us all pause when our government's leadership wants to talk more about ESG, DEI, climate change, and abortion rather than good banking practice. Listen to this clip from Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen about abortion and banking. Well, I believe that eliminating the right of women to make decisions about when and whether to have children would have very damaging effects um, on the economy and would set women back decades. Roe v. Wade and access to reproductive health care, including abortion, helped lead to increased labor force participation. It enabled uh, many women to finish school. That increased their earning potential. It allowed women to plan and balance their families and careers. And research also shows that it had a favorable impact on the well-being and earnings um, of, of children. This unserious thinking about the nation's banks and our economy is not limited to the current White House administration. Great economic minds like Bernie Sanders in the Senate and Cory Bush in the House come to mind. Speaking also of unserious people, earlier this week the president previewed his budget in light of yesterday's economic news 
which sets a very dangerous future for our country. New sky-high taxes on income and unrealized gains for everyone. Trillions of dollars in new entitlements right out of the Karl Marx playbook and deficits which could balloon the national debt to $50 trillion in the next 10 years or less. He and his crew are unserious about Social Security and Medicare. If nothing is done, almost everyone in America under 50 years of age will have zero benefits that their parents once did. How about that legacy, Joe Biden? It is time for the national leadership, the Congress, and the president to get serious about the business of doing business again. Otherwise, faith in our dollar, the economy, and the government will suffer the same way it has done recently in medicine, law enforcement, and our national security, which places all of us in maximum danger. Friends, when we return, we'll chat with a good man who has lived a life of service to our community, Sixto Molina. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the, the cities and the counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap, and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? <sighs> no, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. We're gonna, well, we're that gonna, was quick. We're going to go into a slightly different direction for the rest of our time today. <laughs> we're pleased to welcome a man whose name may be familiar to you, a lawman, one of the most influential and well-respected um, law enforcement officials in the past 50 years or so here in our area. Thanks for joining us, Sixto. Your family wasn't always on the right side of the law. Talk about your great-grandfather, also named Sixto, who arrived in Arizona in 1887 and some of his associates in crime. Yes, thank you for having me. Yes, my uh, grandfather was also Sixto Molina. He came from uh, just uh, south of El Paso um, in, in Mexico, and he moved to San Jose, Arizona, which a lot of people, what, San Jose, where? It's a little settlement about five miles east of uh, Safford, Arizona. And he settled along the, the um, Gila River and started a, a cotton farm uh, in the area. Uh, at one time, uh, he had one of the, the biggest houses in the area, so he was a pretty wealthy guy for, for his day and age. But, uh, yeah, he was involved with uh, Agustin Chacon, who, according to Jan Cleary, who's a local author here in uh, Oro Valley, writes about uh, his, uh, the days back in uh, the old times, in the 1800s. Uh, she, she claims that he was one of the baddest of the bad. Really? Yeah. So um, my grandfather also was involved with some bad people as well. He actually murdered a man, um, uh, not intentionally. It was a, it was a, he was a strike breaker. Um, and uh, so, you know, we were talking about before the show, what a country. I mean, you know, in, in less than a century, people are able to completely transform who they are. Your, your, dad, your dad's life was also remarkable, fought in the Second World War, uh, decorated, um, uh, you moved, um, I guess you came from uh, the Los Angeles area because of your, was it your sister's health or your mom's it health? It was my mother's uh, health. Yeah, and which is, which my family, my wife's family also uh, did the same thing. Um, tell us about your dad and the influence that he had on you. Oh, my dad was a, a good influence on me. Uh, my dad was uh, 
a blue collar worker all his life. Uh, for a while, he he sold um, furniture for Ruben Gold's furniture store in Safford, Arizona. Uh, so he was a salesman, and then he also sold cars at Williams Chevrolet in uh, Winkleman, Arizona. But for the most part, he was a, a copper miner. He was a truck driver. And uh, as part of his duties, he was the union steward for the Teamsters Union, a real hardcore Jimmy Hoffa Teamsters guy. And uh, those are the uh, uh, the stories that I grew up with from, from, from my dad. He didn't talk too much about his time during World War II when he was in the Army. He was assigned uh, to the South Pacific under the uh, command of General Douglas MacArthur. In, uh, spent a lot of time in New Guinea, New Guinea the Philippines, but uh, he, he really didn't uh, talk a whole lot about that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you started your career in law enforcement as a kid at C. E. Rose Elementary School. Yeah, sort of in the uh, school safety patrol. Talk about that. All right. What, what, uh, now, now you know I didn't think about this until just now. I was in the safety patrol when I was in elementary me school. Me too. But oh, great. Well, this was Tom, in producer Tom also. Hey, all four of us. Four, four doors <laughs> in one in one building. I'll get our belts. I'll have them for next Saturday. Yeah. Now, Mar- Margaret Andrews was a safety patrol advisor. She was a teacher at the school, and uh, I applied for and, and uh, was honored to serve on the school safety patrol. Uh, then one day, uh, those of us that were in patrol, three of us were called into the principal's office. And we were told, given very explicit instructions, she says, look, the country's under threat of nuclear war with the Russians. That's when they had all the ICBM missiles ready to launch toward the United States. And he says, if we have to evacuate the school, you'll have to stop traffic on 12th Avenue, which was back then was a very heavy, heavy travel street. He says, you'll have to stop traffic so all the kids can get to their homes. And uh, those that live uh, east of the school uh, on the other side of 12th Avenue. So, fortunately, that day never came. Thank God. But uh, it was one of those, probably the first assignment I can ever remember where failure was not an option. You had mm. to get it done. Yeah. Mm. So, fast forward, you attended Pueblo and Choya High School. You quit baseball so you could help earn money for your family surrounding a mining strike. You enter DECA and get hired as a I don't even know what that word is, Bruce. Sakani's. Sakani's. Sakani's I have store. never heard of that. I have never heard a very, of that. A very well-known, well-respected <laughs> family who who owned that department store for many, many years. Apparently, I didn't get here in time. No, he. I, well, they were on the way out at that time. Yep. Okay. So that was back in 1971, and as assistant manager, uh, their law enforcement came front and center for you, didn't it? Yes, they did. We had to hire uh, off-duty officers because we were having a shoplifting problem. So that's when I first got to meet real, real cops at the store and got to know them and ask questions. And I went on ride-alongs. They invited me, hey, come on, do a ride-along. And the more ride-alongs I did, the more I got hooked on, on the police work. You had a little bit of a, of a law enforcement issue one day in the store, didn't you? With yes. one of those off-duty policemen. Yes, uh, Detective D- Steve Zimmerman. Actually, we had two stores at Southgate Shopping Center, and one was the main store, the other one was a children's shop where they sold children's goods. And the buzzer rang from the children's shop indicating there's problems down there. Hey, Bruce, mom is calling. I, didn't we tell her not to call? I did. Hang on just a second. Hello? Hey, uh, we're on the radio live right now. What's I'll that? No, I'll, you. I'll let you go. We're we're here with Six Toe Molina, a well-respected uh, police officer, decades okay. of experience. Okay. So anyway, yeah, we'll call you back after, Mom. But you're live on the Love radio you. right now. Love you. Bye. Bye. Anyway, so sorry about that. So there's a there's an incident at the store, right? And <laughs> you're there with with Zimmerman. What happened next? So we. Zimmerman and I, uh, we walk over to the uh, children's shop. Nothing we hadn't done before when we, we when we heard the alarm, and we walk in and there's two guys with guns robbing the store, and the two employees in the store they've got this terrified look on their face. Steve Zimmerman, the detective, says to me, "Grab him." So I go and grab a guy, 
and uh, try to grab his arm because he's got this paper bag over his hand. I didn't realize there was a gun inside the paper bag. Oh, my God. Uh, it was a gun. And when I did that, that spooked these guys, and they took off running. So uh, Detective Zimmerman engaged them in a, in a shootout. So there were shots fired back and forth. And uh, that was pretty exciting for a kid, you know, 19, 20 years old. That was an exciting time. Anybody get hit? No. No, the two guys got arrested. They were from uh, Douglas, Arizona. They got arrested sometime later. Zimmerman has to go back for range time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but back then he was carrying a, a five-shot thirty-eight detective special. No. And you were honored by TPD Chief Bill Gilkinson. And shortly after, you go to work as a dispatcher for the South Tucson Police Department and Fire. You were the guy who sounded the siren for the volunteer fire crews. Talk about that and working in South Tucson at the time. Yeah, the, the chief that hired me was uh, George Cordy. George had been a narc, and then uh, he got shot at Hemel Park. He was part of a task force uh, here in the city. Uh, but after he got shot, his hand was disabled, so he was appointed chief of police. So I applied for a job with South Tucson because I wasn't old enough to be a cop at the time, and uh, uh, Chief Cordy decided to hire me. So I would dispatch for both police and fire and it was a one-man band you know you had to answer the phone and do the dispatching and make sure the jail was being run correctly so so from from your DECA experiences doing you know kind of business training you knew how to type you were even doing booking uh, 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 applications weren't you yes yes because the officers would come in and they would have to go to the next call because remember at the time in South Tucson we had, uh, I think it was 52 uh, liquor-licensed establishments in this one square mile. So wow. it was a pretty rowdy place. Greyhound Park was at its peak. Right. A lot of things were going on in, in South Tucson. In fact, you'd drive down 6th Avenue, and uh, 6th Avenue was lit up like Las Vegas with all these neon signs That's right. from the hotels. and every, It was a really cool place to work. A lot of activity in South Tucson. So, so they'd bring the guys in. Yep. Drop them off. You'd book them, right? And put them in the cells. Yeah, put them in the cells. Uh, You're how old at this time? I'm uh, 19, 19 years old. Were you even able to vote in those days no. at age nineteen? Uh, I don't think so. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but you could drink. I remember but, you could drink. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, you had to be twenty-one back then. Oh, really? Yeah. You had I to thought be they dropped. I thought they dropped the age to eighteen for a while uh, about that time. No. Yeah, yeah I, I don't remember. Okay. I, if if I did, I. I didn't never went into bars to drink. I did my yeah. You had drinking a, you, on the you had on the a, side where you, nobody can see me. You, you had enough uh, <laughs> Riley people, uh, Riley people from from all the bars and and liquor stores in the area. So, in the summer '72, you go to work at TPD. Uh, after your probation training, you're patrolling streets on the far east side of Tucson. So you're a South Side kid, right? Kind of West Side South Side kid. Right. How familiar w were you? patrolling these streets east of Craycroft Road for Team 4. Uh, aside from East Speedway, I didn't really know <laughs> any other streets. And the only reason I knew Speedway because that was a place to go cruising. Yeah, yeah, Back yeah. then, the muscle cars were a big yeah. thing. So we would cruise Speedway, 6th Avenue. But uh, no, I'm assigned to the east side. We've got paper maps. We don't have GPS. We've got these paper maps, and you've got to find you know where you're getting to uh, using a paper map. I, think, I don't think kids these days know what they a paper map or a compass. They'd be lost. And now back then, though, once you get going, it shouldn't take you too long to learn the major areas. No, no. You, you, the first thing you do when you hit hit the the uh, the road as a cop is you you familiarize yourself with your beat very well. And uh, and I tried to do that. So I didn't have geographically. I didn't have a, a problem. And how much crime was there at that time? Well, the Pipe Piper of Tucson had just been arrested. Charlie uh, Schmidt. Yep, killed. Yep, uh, 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 the name of the girls. I forget the name of the girls at the time. But uh, uh, there wasn't. Uh, there was crime, uh, but there was some high-profile crime too. But it wasn't massive. It was manageable. We had enough cops back then to take care of the, of the crime problem. Gangs? No, no gangs. Gangs didn't appear, make a, an appearance in the city till about 1980. 
Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about uh, talking about gang uh, gang activities. We'll uh, talk about one uh, Adam One and how uh, the issues that helped create Adam One have not changed at all. For no, the mo- for the most part. No, the 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 West Side seems to be the city's uh, stepchild, and back back in in um, the sixties. That, that appeared to be. We had an officer assigned to the west side, west of Interstate 10 between 29th and Grant Road. But also what's there is the Pima County Jail. So if somebody made an arrest downtown and needed a transport officer to re- transport a, a prisoner to the county jail, they call the Adam 1 officer very often and take him out of his beat. Consequently, the people of the west side felt they weren't getting the level of police service that they deserved for this reason. And they made a, a big uh, to-do about it with um, uh, Chief Gilkinson. Uh, and in fact, uh, they also at the same time also wanted a park on the west side because there was no park. And the city had been promising to d- develop a park on the west side. They didn't do that. Consequently, a lot of folks from the west side got together and they went to El Rio Golf Course, which is a very uh, high-end golf uh country club at the time and they sat on the greens and picnicked on the greens completely shutting down golf of course the police were called uh there was a confrontation between the police and the people and that led to what's now referred to as the el rio riots uh remember this is back in the late 60s uh there was uh, the vietnam war going on there was a lot of unrest with the community and the police were seen as an arm of the establishment God, this is a wonderful history lesson for people. Even if you lived in Tucson all your life, this is a wonderful history lesson about what Tucson was at that point in time. You you talked through uh, our friend David Layton's uh, biography of you about how um, the the call times were very very long and and not enough police personnel on the street. Correct. Um, so when when you became an officer, how how did how did the lack of, of manpower when when you were in that area of town as you first started? Because you because I think when you were doing your probationary work, you were on the south side. Am I remembering right? Uh, well, we were spread all over the city. Uh, okay. We one day we might go to the east side. Got it. One day the south side. We were so, all over. So was there was there a palpable difference? In the in the response times, then you know if you were working one day on the east side and then and then the next side on the west side, could you see the the difference in the call times, the response times that were going on? I, I really didn't notice that until I was assigned to the west side, and that was an issue uh, because the department said, "Look, we have a problem here," and the department acknowledged that you know the level of service the folks on the west side were getting. Was, was not the same as other folks. And uh, to compound matters, there was a lot of heroin sales going on on the west side, a lot of drug houses, and a lot of west side kids were dying, just like they're dying from fentanyl today. They were so dying not much has changed, just the manner of delivery of the drugs. Exactly. Hey, just real quickly, uh, we're going to take a break in just a second. Talk about your training when you were a probationary uh, policeman and the kind of mentorship that you got uh, being a Tucson police officer in the early 70s. Okay. Um, I was assigned, uh, right after the police academy, we were assigned to rookie squads. And each uh, rookie squad, uh, there was about eight of us in each squad, and we were all rookies. We had just graduated from the police academy. And the rookie uh, squad was led by a senior uh, sergeant and a senior police officer. And their job was to make sure that uh, they got us ready to go on our, our, on our own. I was lucky. Uh, I worked for Sergeant Dean Taylor and Officer Tom Mock. And uh, Tom really worked with me because my writing skills weren't what they should have been at, at, um, at that level. And Tom worked with me as to how to write police reports. It was more just the facts kind of thing versus telling a story with opinions. You don't want to do that in, in uh, police reports. But um, uh, that was that was a lot of it. Then, of course, they respond to calls for you, and they would under and they they would evaluate how you handled certain situations. You know, did you back off when you shouldn't have, or you know, did you did you back off too or not soon? Back off too soon. 
of all the critical things. And consequently, after uh, my training was done, um, I didn't realize it until I was reading some of the documents uh, from a stack of documents that I have, that I was the first one released from the training squad. I had accelerated, and of all the trainees, and there was about 50 of us, I was the first one released into a regular regular squad. Nobody's going to be. So when you go into the training squad, day number one, what's the average amount of time that it takes for somebody to get through? Usually it was about uh, 12 weeks. Back then it was about 12, 12 weeks in, in training with a training squad. How long did it take you? I, I'm not sure. It was less less than 12 weeks, uh, but I, I don't recall exactly how long that was. Did you feel comfortable at the time? Yes, I did. Okay. I've uh, I got assigned to, uh, the, uh, again, the west side and uh, with uh, Sergeant Marv Schreifer, uh, who was a, a great guy, bunch of old head veteran cops uh, who didn't take any crap from anybody. So you, you got to go along to get along. But uh, in their own way, they were they were very gentle, you know, but they were firm. Hmm. Sixto, we need to pay some bills uh, here to pay the man. All right. Uh, so let's take a pause and hear messages from each of our great show supporters. You're listening to Inside Track. Our guest is Sixto Molino, and Eb, Sixto, and myself will be right back. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing metal plate and roofing materials as well as new and used steel aluminum and stainless steel to ranchers artists interior designers roofers and do-it-yourselfers just like all the listeners here tucson iron and metal retail is open monday through fridays 8 a.m to 4 30 p.m and saturdays 8 a.m to noon tucson iron and steel retail 701 east 36th street Call 520-209-1576 or go to TucsonIronRetail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. This is Eb Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management. Are you letting rising inflation interfere with your ammo budget? Don't do that. Let us show you how to buy the same goods and services 20 years from now as you can today. We manage money for gun owners and we can guide you to retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911 or wilkinsonwealthmgmt.com. Welcome back. We're chatting with a man with an amazing life history who's devoted his life protecting and serving our community. Let's talk how a call regarding a break-in led to a proposal for marriage. Well, I was working the West Side, and I received a call to respond to a burglary at an apartment complex, and uh, I did. I I took the burglary report, and... Uh, there was a, a young lady there, the daughter of the burglary victim, uh, who seemed to pay some a lot of attention to me. She offered me a cup of coffee, and uh, then I went back because we arrested the burglar, who was a, the uh, the uh, manager of the property at the Greenview Apartments. I was just and saying, that it, was had to be great. it couldn't have been at Menlo Park Apartments. No, that was ours. It happened in Greenview. Greenview. I knew that. <laughs> It was a Greenview Apartments, so I went back to let the, the uh, family know that um, we had arrested the burglar, and this young lady was still there and offered me another cup of coffee and then another and another, and one thing led to the next. I tell you what, that's the most expensive cup of coffee I've ever <laughs> bought. <laughs> 49 years, it worked out okay, right? Yes, yes it did. What, six, six, ki- uh, six children? Four. Four children, six uh, grandchildren, 
And how many great grandchildren? Three, three great grandchildren. Well, it all worked out pretty good. Didn't yeah, it? I, it did. That's an amazing. That's an amazing story. It that's, is. That's great. <laughs> so David Layton wrote a wonderful biography for the Arizona Historic Society. You were uh, under suspicion of a serious crime yourself, didn't you? Yes. When Talk I, about that. When I left uh, Adam One, I went to uh, work patrol on the south side of town in my old neighborhood, and uh, the reason I did that is because. The sergeant in charge of that patrol unit used to be a detective with me in Adam 1. So we thought we'd team up again. And uh, I got a call to, I think it was 8th and Irvington, to a bus stop. A lady had passed out there. I responded. My sergeant responded. We had to call for the medics. The uh, paramedics from Tucson Fire gave her a clean bill of health. They said, she's drunk. Just take her, take her home. My sergeant says, yeah, okay, put her in the car, take her home. So I did. I put her in the car, strapped her in with a seat belt, and drove to Park in 29th. And when I pulled into the parking lot of her apartment complex, I tried to wake her up, and she wasn't responsive. So I called the medics again, and they came back out, and they examined her, and they said, she's dead. What did you do to her? I oh, said, my God. What? I said, what did <laughs> you how, did do to her? Your howl at that time had been on the force how many years? Uh that was in 1977, I believe. Five uh, years or so. Five years. Yeah. yeah. Five years. So to, in today's world, they call it an in-custody death. So now she's last seen with me. She died while I was transported. Uh, under her. your purview. I'm, I'm the guy that's under suspicion. The homicide detectives come out because uh, in, in uh, at TPD or in elsewhere, every death case is regarded as a homicide until it can be proven otherwise. Right. So now I'm a, under investigation for uh, killing this woman. And um, it was uh, two, two long days, but in the end, the medical examiner determined that she had a severe case of pneumonia, mm. and that's what, what killed her. Mm. But uh, that was a, a, an experience. But that experience helped me later when I was a homicide sergeant. How so? In, in uh, dealing with officer-involved shootings, understanding what those officers are going through. A lot of people are of the opinion, well, cops... You know, they're proud because they shot somebody or they got in a shooting. And uh, I think just the opposite is true. These guys are under a lot of uh, pressure while they're under investigation. And then uh, if it's what they, we call a clean shooting, uh, they still have to live with the fact that they killed somebody. They get to know the about the, the victim's family, if they had kids, uh, the pet dog. And uh, you have all those feelings in you that you have to, you know, learn how to deal with and put it behind you. You served as a police officer in different capacities for a long, long time. How many times in in the course of performing your 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 professional duties did you ever have to fire your weapon? Never. Came very close. You're a successful policeman. Yeah, that's a I, that's a never. that's a good career. <laughs> we have a, we have a caller, uh, Donna, who has a comment for Sixto Molina. Donna, go ahead. Hi, Sixto. I know your beautiful wife. I worked with her at TMC for many years. So when you go home today, please tell her, Donna from the NICU says hello. I will do that, Donna. Thank you. Okay. Have a great day. Thanks Thank for you. calling in. Thanks for calling in. So it's interesting, though, how, how that incident where you were involved then really kind of transformed how you looked at uh, these sorts of things and officer-involved shootings. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. It, it definitely had an impact on me, and um, you, you you don't want to give preferential treatment because you still have to do your job. But you can feel some compassion toward the officer that did the shooting. Mm -hmm. You you want to say the right things. You don't want to aggravate the situation anymore. And I think I learned that from that experience with that in custody death. So with that being said, how many officer involved shootings did you have to? What preside over? Would that be the term? Well, yeah. As as a detective, we would respond. Uh, the homicide detail. I was uh, assigned to, to the homicide detail. I think we we responded to two when I was a detective, and then as a the sergeant, I, I responded to two when I was in charge of the homicide unit. So really, you know, Tucson, as opposed to other major metropolitan areas, really has a. a a low percentage of, of officer-involved shootings, it seems. Well, at that time, uh, we did have a low, low percentage. Uh, uh, officer-involved shootings were not something that were very common. 
and I was never associated with one where it was shaky, but I've I've been at scenes where officers were involved in uh, officer-involved shootings that were not justified. Mm-hmm. And one was at Southgate, right there at the, where the Jack in the Box is. Really? When you yeah. say not justified, what does that mean? Uh, where the officer was not justified in using deadly force. Okay. And that was a situation where there was a bunch of uh, uh, lowrider club at the Jack in the Box at 6th and 44th, and uh, the officers, they started to fight because there were rival gang members there. Uh, they started to fight. Jack in the Box called the cops. Cops came, but the cops made a tactical error, and that was um, they they parked on 6th Avenue, so they were telling all these lowriders, you know, leave the area, go... The lowriders couldn't because the driveway was blocked by the police cars. And if you know lowriders, they're not going to separate from their cars. Right. You know, so so that led to um, a lot of uh, chaos. There was more fights. Uh, officers called uh, uh, 1099, which is officer needs assistant. There was a lot of police activity there. And then this one guy comes driving through the area, and he's um, driving from north to south, and he went past the barricade where he, you know, he shouldn't have been driving in that area, but he went past the barricade. And as he was driving through, weaving in and out of traffic, one officer thought that he was trying to run him over. And that officer then fired shots as uh, Joe Sanui was the guy, uh, the victim. As he was driving uh, south on 6th, the officer fired shots with um, his handgun and shot Joe in the back. The, the bullet went through the back of the truck and into the back of uh, Joe Sanui. And then later it was found out that he had armor-piercing bullying, bullets, which he should not have mm. had. So, so there was situations like that. Is there, any, is there any police show on TV or in the movies where you've said, hey, these guys kind of, they capture the, 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 the mood of working on the street? Yeah, um, uh, way back in, in the day, Adam-12 was one of those shows. Dragnet, definitely. I'm a big Dragnet fan. And you were Officer 714, uh, right? Yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was. That's another story. <laughs> we're going to get to that. Um, uh, but uh, Dragnet, Police Story was one. The current shows today, SWAT, somewhat realistic, but they s- speed things up because it's the movies. Uh, and uh, Blue Bloods. I like Blue Bloods because... They put very real situations on the table for viewers to to watch. And there's always a situation with the police chief that he's got to make some kind of command decision and two other storylines that develop during the show. So you worked, when you were in Homicide, you worked a, a very famous uh, murder case which resulted uh, in the eventual uh, conviction of Darren Lee Bolton. Can you talk about that? Yes, uh, Zosha Lee Pickett and Kathy Fritz were two little girls. Oh, were, this was the Fritz. Oh my goodness! Yeah, gracious. they they were murdered uh, separately at different times. Yeah, and uh, I think in the Fritz case, the focus was on the parents. You know, uh, people were talking. Well, the parents must have had something to do with it. Right. You know, it was a retaliation against the parents, and that's why they were killed. But when I went to uh, got into the homicide detail, uh, I was tasked with taking all the information from both child murder cases, organizing it into a computer file where it would list all the leads and what the results of each lead was so that nothing was overlooked. Uh, one of the uh, detectives, I had uh, two additional detectives assigned to the unit, uh, Marilyn Malone and Joe Godoy. They were the ones, Marilyn was the, the, the computer wizard, that's why she was there, and uh, and Joe was the experienced uh, uh, investigator, but they worked together and they, and they put this list of uh, leads together. But one thing that they did is they sent out the fingerprints to all the fingerprint centers around the country. And nothing happened for several years until I think it was uh, later in, in the 90s when the state of Illinois was putting their fingerprint system online. Uh, they were running a few test um, um, fingerprint cards through the system, just to test out the system, and lo and behold, boom! There was a hit. There was a hit. It came up a, a hit with how both mu- cases. How much of police work when you're investigating? Because this, by that time, was a cold case, right? 
Because yes. the murder had taken case a while before. Yes. Um, how much of it is luck and how much of it is just good sleuth and good policing? I think I think it's 50-50 yeah. because uh, solving the, the uh, Fritz and uh, murder case was, uh, was luck because... The state of Illinois just happened to be testing a system. So, Eb, Eb, I don't think you were in Tucson at that at that point in time. Those two murders were on the minds of Tucsonans for years, and even now, with a more recent the Sellis case. I mean, I think for anybody who's lived here all their lives, like like we have, right? We, you know, we're constantly kind of thinking back. You know, the, the Hoskinson case as well, and now this one with with Sellis and the one with Fritz and and the other young girl. It, it really, it does create kind of a trauma on the community, doesn't it, yes, in some it, respects? Yes, it does, because everybody's concerned. Can I send my kid to school? Is the killer still out there? Because uh, child killers are a special breed. Uh, most of them have, uh, they're, they're sex offenders. And like a drug addict, if they have a chemical imbalance in the brain, which can be treated, can't be cured, but can be treated, uh, if they don't get their medication then they become predators. And now they have to go out and find somebody to victimize, you know, sexually. And and that's very dangerous. When I worked in the child uh, sexual assault unit, we saw a lot of that happening. How so, many don't want to be treated? Probably most of them. Just, you know, just like the, the people today. Uh, you have to want to be treated to be treated. There's medication for you. It's not a cure, but it'll keep you under control. So you left homicide to work sex crimes, but you didn't want to. Right, right. The, tell us why and, and, and tell us your experiences, you know, in, in that division. Yeah, the uh, the knock on the door came. I, I was uh, I, I, I was working homicide. Uh, we had uh, had 24 murders in the city uh, the, that last year that I was in homicide. We solved 25 murders, which was one more murder wow. than what we had. It was, a, I think, a 104% clearance rate. I thought, you know, hey, my, my commanders, I, I was proud of my detectives for doing all that work. Um, I figured my commanders would be, be proud of me, but the knock on the door came, and uh, the, the word was, the captain wants to see you. I go see the captain, says, we're transferring you out of homicide to child sexual abuse. But I wasn't too happy at the time that that was happening because I was over-invested in, in the homicide work. Yeah. We were on a roll. And and uh, how does that compare with today? I mean, the, how many homicides get get cleared? Let's say today, if we, if they, we had fifty, let's just say fifty percent, eighty percent, a hundred percent. Well, I, I think um, the uh, current homicide unit at Tucson Police is doing a really good job. I think they're around seventy to eighty percent. That's very, which good. is very good, yeah, considering the number of homicides they have. Right, 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 right. You know, I, I think they're, they're it's very, very good, but. Um, uh, so I, I, I took a week off because I was so upset. I took a week off, went to child sexual abuse with, you know, a, a new attitude. One, okay, we're going to do the job here. And uh, looking back, uh, leaving homicide or being moved from homicide was probably one of the best things that could have happened to me because it gave me my life back, gave me back my life with so I could spend time with my kids. I got back into coaching uh-huh. Little League and... Uh, it was it was a good thing. So you but, didn't have a lot of time as homicide. No, two 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 years as a homicide sergeant. So let's get back to gangs. Um, there there have been several movies uh, that have fictionalized and and sort of glorified a gang activity. One of them was the 1992 uh, uh, movie Colors. Um, you had a colleague, uh, Terry Rosema, uh, who was able to mimic. Some of those voices talk about that. Yes. <laughs> um, I was uh, the sergeant of the, of the gang unit, and Terry was uh, a detective in the gang unit, and we had uh, cubicles in our office. And Terry had this uh, thing for, excuse me, <coughs> for uh, impersonating gang members, and that's what, he, uh, that's what he would do. We think that we'd heard his voice in the background... And we're thinking, okay, how come, who brought this gang member into the office? And it wasn't a gang member, it was Terry doing voice impressions. And Terry uh, still does or worked at, at City of Marana, or Town of Marana as a, as a city manager? As far as I know, he's still there, yes. Yeah, he funny. was a longtime police chief and then uh, city manager. And, and so, I'm sorry, go ahead. 
let's talk about the gangs for a moment. Um, since we brought up uh, Terry, talk about the gangs back when you know back in the day versus the gangs now and what you're seeing there. Well, uh, in the in in 1980 when the movie Boulevard Nights came out, there was a uh, uh, Boulevard Nights glorified the lowrider and the gang member. All of a sudden, it seemed that everybody in this town wanted to have a lowrider and wanted to affiliate with uh, with the gang. So, uh, Chief Kilkinson thought that uh, let's uh, start a task force and evaluate the gang problem in this town. So the task force did, and in the end, uh, gave a report to mayor and council, to the police chief, and it was decided that we needed to have a gang unit because gangs were not something that was going to go away. We needed to have a gang unit. And uh, so a gang unit was uh, was created. That was in 1980. In uh, Later on, I think around 89, 90, when the movie Colors came out, that glorified the Bloods and the Crips. That was another total wave of gang members that uh, that started to come out. And um, there was a lot of violence in the city. In fact, the uh, early to mid-90s, I think 95, was the year that there was probably more juvenile violence than adult violence in the city because it was so so massive, so many gang members. Uh, it was a very violent era in, uh, in 1995. And that, that had to be controlled, and and it was, the the uh, the police chief at the time, um, uh, set up special units just to deal with the youth violence, and everybody was on board. So one of the big things in your career that separated you, not from all of your colleagues, but but from a number of them, um, was the influence that that um, Chief Ronsat had on you to get involved for you and your fellow officers to get involved in the community, both with sports and social activities and at the church and so on. Talk about how how that sort of interaction within your uh, your civilian community with police officers as human beings helped change policing and, and helped you as a, as a police officer yourself? Well, um, Chief Frontstadt felt that uh, cops needed to earn the respect from yeah. the community. So not only did we have to do good police work, but he really pushed for officers to get involved with their community as Little League coaches on different boards, get involved with the schools. So that people would see the, the officers not only as as the cops in uniform, but also as the human human beings, the dads and the mothers, you know that that uh, we were, and uh, I thought that paid off uh, big dividends, and I, I bought into that philosophy, uh, that community policing philosophy of his, uh, and it, it paid off big dividends, and I, I'll, I'll tell you where it really paid off. Uh, it was uh, July 21, 1978. The uh, police helicopter was flying around Reed Park, and there was a guy that uh, took a high-power rifle and sh- fired shots at the police helicopter, striking the helicopter. The bullet went, uh, came in through the bottom of the pilot's, uh, near the pilot's foot, and then went out through the top. We had no clue who the suspect was, but we put out... Um, uh, on, on the air through the news media that we were looking for the suspect um, and we asked people to call us. Well, it was a for, well, at the time it was a gang member that called in with a tip because we had been dealing with these gang members. He may not have been in the same gang as that guy was in. Right. Well, I think he was. Oh, okay. I, I, I think he was, but they knew that uh, as cops, you know, we had to deal with the violence aspect but not all gang members are violent people. And, and the reason I say that is because some of them live in neighborhoods where they got to go along to get along, right, right, not that right. they want that lifestyle. Right. So we got a tip, and within, I think, 48 hours, we made an arrest. Uh, well, actually, the FBI made an arrest. After sure, that's we a federal the, offense. Yeah, uh, made an arrest based on our information. Of course, we accompanied the FBI on, on this arrest warrant. Uh, and did the search of the car and, and, and the house. But it was resolved. But uh, that paid off. And we I'm have, sure it's paid off many other times. We have a quick comment or question from Charles Heller, who's on the line. Charles, go ahead. If you want to just go ahead, because all the stuff you got, I'll understand. But Sixto, it's very rare that you hear a, a corruption scandal in TPD. It's been a pretty clean department. But a number of years ago, there was one guy that I think went sour 
and went after the uh, Curves Cabaret nightclub and ended up getting shot and killed. It was actually an officer who did something. Can you fill in that story? <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> yeah, I think you're, you're talking about Officer Gabe Gabindano. <clears throat> I'm, I'm sure, sorry, I don't recall his name. But anyway, if you can tell that story, because it's pretty damn interesting. Yeah, I, I think he, uh, uh, the way it went down, he robbed somebody who was taking the night receipts to the bank. Right, the manager. The manager, <clears throat> and, uh, excuse me. <clears throat> and when he was found, uh, I think he had uh, tape on his shoes so that his tracks, shoe tracks couldn't be uh, compared to those at the scene. I really wasn't involved with that investigation, but since you brought up uh, police corruption in the in the 90s, in the mid-90s, I think we had 16 Tucson police officers under criminal indictment. Right. Wow. 16. And I hadn't been able to find that article, but I remember all of them being pictured in the paper. Wasn't it? I, I don't want to cast any negative aspersions on somebody that are unjustified, un, un, uh, but I think it had something to do with kind of cooperating with a, with a uh, prostitution ring. No, uh, that was later. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, uh, Wrong scandal. <laughs> I, I think Abendano, the robber, was involved in that. Uh, and uh, uh, I think there was uh, some officers involved in uh, sexual assault. It was a very sad uh, situation for the Tucson Police Department to uh, to go through. But we worked through it. Uh, we had good leadership. We worked through it and uh, gained the respect of the people again. Sixto, uh, we're almost at the end of our time today, uh, and I know that there, we're not going to get to the other things we wanted to talk about, but this is an important thing, because you're also involved in Ed Ackerley's uh, pursuit of becoming Tucson's next mayor. Public safety is a very important part of the what people are interested in today. Uh, I hope you'll come back and, and talk with us about that, but just talk real briefly why you did get involved in Ed's campaign in the last minute or so that we have. Well, Actually, 30 seconds, unfortunately. <laughs> when I found out that uh, Ed's number one priority was public safety to restore the um, uh, staffing levels to what they should be at the police and fire departments, I said, I, I need to get on this guy's uh, campaign. And uh, I was appointed as a chairman of his campaign committee. Uh, but, uh, the, you know, the, the big issue is uh, we are, this city is understaffed in police and fire departments. And uh, that, that is a very sad commentary because it's very dangerous out there right now, and we need to change that. Because with, without that, the city's going to go down the tubes. Sixto Molina, thank you very much for joining us today. Our community is in debt. Eb and I are in debt Absolutely. for everything that you've given. It's a life of distinction. I mean that, and and I even though we didn't meet until today, I, I felt as though I've known you for a long, long time. We're at the end of our day, uh, insiders. Until next week, uh, when we uh, welcome guest Josh Jacobson along with uh, his crime-free coalition and Phil Kirpin from American Commitment for Inside Track. This is Bruce Ash and Eb Wilkinson.